Today we are continuing in our selfish versus soul-filled sermon series for this spring semester. And our central and principal verse today, it's one verse from Scripture, from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. I invite you to follow along as we turn to God's Word. Hear now God's Word, Ephesians 5, verse 2. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God, a sweet, that is a pleasing, satisfying aroma. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Sometimes it's good to stop and ask why we do things. As good parents will often remember, instead of becoming exasperated, instead of becoming angry, which, by the way, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us we are not to do, um, what are we supposed to do? Well, a lot of times we were just supposed to ask, now tell me exactly why you did that. It's important. Why, did, do, why do I do the things I do? Why do you do the things you're going to do this week? Well, I don't know. It's just what I do. Okay, let's think a little more fully about this. As we enter Holy Week, this supreme turning of all of human history and the turning of history for your salvation and mine, the obvious question is, why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? We're told throughout the, the second half of the Gospels, Luke chapter 9, after the transfiguration, Luke says it in chapter 9, verse 51, I believe it is, that Jesus set his face like flint, quoting back to Isaiah the prophet. Remember, we looked at that when we were moving through Isaiah. Set his face like flint uh, for Jerusalem, for his exodus, for his death, for his lifting up on the cross that he would face in Jerusalem. But why? And why? after the Sabbath, in those days leading up to the Passover for the Jews, with Jesus understanding what was going to happen on Lamb Selection Sunday, catch that, on Lamb Selection Sunday, understanding that he was called by his Father to be the Lamb of God, an offering and a sacrifice, still why would he do it? Why would he do it? Why do we have Holy Week? How do we end up with Good Friday and saving a sinner like me or like you? Well, the answer is love. Godly love. Self-giving love. We see glimpses of this occasionally between a husband and a wife a parent and a child, a willingness to give myself away to save you, to help you. But these are just glimpses, little echoes of the one in whose image we are made. 
and we see Jesus in his heart and can know him in a way that whether you're eight or 88, you can begin to receive and comprehend godly love, self-giving love. So that's why Jesus did this. This is important to remember and to focus on Jesus's love for us this whole week, most especially, and frankly, if we're Christians, every day we live. Um, touched by the letter that we received from Franklin Graham. I received a letter from Franklin Graham in Samaritan's Purse this past week, and Franklin wrote to me, uh, in, in effect wrote to this church, thanking me for forwarding the gifts, not only the gifts from your regular giving and tithing that we allocated this spring to Samaritan's Purse work in the Ukraine with those field hospitals and medical clinics, but also um, thanking us, in effect, for so many of you contributed last month to supplement what we were already giving out of our regular mission budget allocated to help. Just in the midst of Ukraine, to have over 160 workers from Samaritan's Purse, many of them volunteers, Franklin wrote to me and to us telling us about the tens of thousands of Ukrainian uh, women and children and, and elderly that they are helping and seeing every day fleeing from the devastation that is besetting and just destroying so much of Ukraine. And, and, and in that letter, in that message to us, Franklin Graham said this, we are there not simply to give physical and medical help to all these refugees and to provide medical help where there is no medical help with all the clinics and hospitals so destroyed and decimated right now, all that transition going on. He said, we're not there simply to give medical and physical help. We are there most of all so that the people of Ukraine can know this, that God still loves them and is with them. And for everyone who will turn to Jesus, even in the darkest hour and especially in the darkest hour, there is salvation and peace and hope in a world that looks hopeless. I was so touched by that message from Franklin Graham and so touched remembering how this church family, you, have been willing to reach out. But again, the question would be, why would you do that? Why would we do that? Why would we send our, quote, hard-earned money and mission funds and tithes and offerings uh, a significant portion to help people that you and I don't personally know. And it's because God knows them, God made them, God loves them, and right now, even in the darkest hour, even in the valley of the shadow of death, God wants them to know he is with them. Love, walk. Today's sermon is walk, and you know, we're gonna walk one way or the other. In the Bible, to walk means the way you live out your life, your lifestyle, what you do with your choices. And you're gonna either walk selfishly, somewhere on the spectrum of selfishness, or you have the opportunity, you and I do, to walk in a soul-filled way, in a way that follows Christ. Last Sunday, in our second of two messages on forgiveness, flowing out of the previous sermon on prayer for forgiveness, last Sunday's message, you know, the message was, 
victim, avenger, or forgiver. We have a choice. Obviously, victim and avenger was over on the selfish side. Forgiver was on the God-inspired, soul-filled side. We moved our way through the, the latter verses of, of chapter 4 of Ephesians and came all the way to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And I mentioned to you that the chapter markings, and you know chapters and verses are way later. They don't come till medieval time. They have nothing to do with the original scripture. That break there is unfortunate because chapter 5 of Ephesians really flows from chapter 4. Chapter 5, verse 1 was a continuation. Paul says, therefore, in other words, he's talking about what he's just been talking about in, 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 in chapter 4 of Ephesians. He says, therefore, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, we looked at that last week, and let me draw your attention to something that's unique about this particular exhortation or command from Paul to the Christians in Ephesus and to us, by extension, as God's word. This, Paul, in a number of his letters, in a number of situations, urges his, the churches, his readers, those who are hearing his message, to imitate Paul as Paul, in turn, imitates the way of Christ and teaches them in the way of Christ. So Paul invites them to imitate him, to do what I do. There are a few occasions where Paul invites one church to imitate another church. But there is only one, yes, only one time, staggeringly, where Paul exhorts and commands Christians, commands us by extension, to imitate God. And it's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. You really don't get this stated that blatantly anywhere else in all the scripture. Now, yes, in the Old Testament, repeatedly, and this flows in the New Testament, we're called to be holy because God is holy. Jesus, the closest we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, is that other verse that I referred to the last couple Sundays dealing with forgiveness, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew tells us that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And Jesus goes on to say, therefore, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Holy, in other words, holy filling out the holiness call of God. But, but to say this this wide open, be imitators of God as beloved children, that's a little bit of a challenge if you think about it. Can I be omniscient and omnipotent? What do you think? Can, can I imitate all the attributes of God? Certainly not the, those that are not communicable, right? So what is Paul talking about here? We need a little bit of help, don't we? Well, we get it in verse 2, the verse on which we are putting our central focus today, because there's a conjunctive here that continues the thought. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so what is Paul talking about? What, what is God's word talking about? It has to do with walking in love. So let's go back to our verse. How are we going to imitate God as beloved children and walk in love just as 
kathos, means like according to, according to the way. Just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice in a fragrant, a sweet, that means totally satisfying aroma to God. This is how we are to live as God's children, how we, we are to go. And let's break this down now, walk, walk in love, Number one, walk. Number two, walk in love. And thirdly, and this is, the, of course, the deepest and most developed, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God in a sweet, satisfying aroma. First of all, walk. You can follow this in the sermon notes. It's in the bulletin, so you can track through the development here. Number one, walk. A long obedience in the same direction. In the Bible, walking is a term that's used as like a metaphor for how we are supposed to live out our lives. Walk. So let's unpack that just a little bit. From Jesus' day all the way through the present. If you were to take a class in Judaism 101, if you were looking to convert to become a Jew, a good conservative or orthodox rabbi would take you through teaching you halakha and basics of halakha. So halakha is the way the Jews, they typically refer to this colloquially as the law of being a good Jew. And it includes um, under the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the 613 mitzvot, the commandments that are in Torah, okay, number one. Number two, it includes the rabbinical teaching, uh, Mishnah, etc., on Talmud, on the law, and it includes the traditions. So the law, the rabbinical explications of the commandments or the mitzvot, and uh, the traditions. But here's the thing I want you to understand. The word halakha comes from the Hebrew root halak, which means to walk or to go. And that's biblical because the whole message of the Bible over and over again is we are supposed to walk. And we're going to walk in one way or another. Everybody walks. A mass murderer walks in one direction. The Bible is saying we have a specific way for you to walk. And in fact, when Jesus calls disciples to follow him, what does he call them to do? Come and follow him in the way that he goes. In the Acts of the Apostles, frequently when Luke refers to people being Christians now, it says the people of the what? The way. Okay. A, a walk or a way of life. So walking. Let's think about walking for a couple minutes today as we think about Jesus riding that donkey into Jerusalem and then walking throughout his life and his ministry and ultimately walking to Golgotha with that cross on his back. Walk is progress in a direction. You're walking somewhere in your life. You're heading somewhere. Uh, walk is also, as I've said, a lifestyle. And yes, I'm going ahead and just in total counterpoise, I understand that a long obedience in the same direction is a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, 
uh, an atheistic uh, philosopher, but he actually, what he says, the only essential thing under heaven and earth is a long walk, a long obedience in the same direction. He actually got it right. It's one of these times where God is actually saying, okay, you're rejecting my son, but you understand my son is the only one who fulfills this, right? Um, a long obedience in the same direction. It's a true ethic, in other words. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to live it out daily and throughout your life. And this is what the Bible is calling us to, to be Christians. Uh, walk also has to do with pace. And this is something I think we all need to slow down and listen to. We live in an age of acceleration. But God is calling us to slow down and to spend time with him, to walk with him. Unfortunately, a lot of times we have so many activities that we are rushing from one thing to another. And a lot of times parents and grandparents are rushing their children from one thing to another at a faster and faster pace. And what's the underlying message we're telling our children and our grandchildren? Well, we don't actually walk. We run, we sprint, and if possible, we catapult hypersonically just like they send those missiles. That's the way we want to live, from one thing to another. Is that a biblical, godly way of living? No, it's actually not. And sometimes one of God's great gifts, it's essential to being saved and his saving us and our growing spiritually, is God slows us down. Now, God invites us to slow down and to walk with him. But if we miss the invitation and turn down the invitation, God sends further hints. You know, your marriage isn't really going quite as well as you would like. You know, things are not really that fulfilling after all, are they? God keeps telling us by the Holy Spirit. But some of us are very stubborn rushers, aren't we? And so we refuse to slow down. Some of us are even outright disobedient to clear commands from God, for instance, the seventh day, the Sabbath day for Christians, that means Sunday, is supposed to be a day of totally slowing down, worshiping every Sunday, spending time with God, definitely in the church family and worship, but also spending time in a different way. I got to rush out of here. I got things to do, people to see. I got games to go to. I got things. God's, God said, did you not read what my Bible is saying to you? Ultimately, this is the ultimate gift from God. Sometimes if we refuse disobediently to follow God's commands, if we reject his hints, his invitations, God will slow us down. Sometimes it's very painful when God slows us down. There are some people who even miss those signals, even the walls that they run into, but ultimately we will all slow down. We will run no more, no more hypersonic plane flights, no more rushing off to this game or to that or to this practice because life is over. I wanna invite you today to slow down and walk with God before you leave this earth. Which brings us to the fact that walk really indicates communion. You know, all the way through the Bible, all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, God comes down to the Garden of Eden to, guess what? Walk. 
I mean, we read this, God does this. This is the way God's spending time with his people that he's created. And then when they rebel against God, God is down for his afternoon walk, you know, in the cool of the late afternoon heading into the evening. And what do the people do? They avoid walking with God. They're hiding from God. That's Genesis chapter 3. But you get to Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, you know, we get this list of this person begat that person, and this person lived, um, you know, so-and-so many years, and he begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so, and then he died. And the next person lives for a period of time, you know, has children, and then dies. And we keep going through this list, and all of a sudden we get jarred awake by the fact that you get to uh, chapter 5, verse 22, and it says that Enoch walked with God. I mean, this is the pers person who's walked with God since Adam and since the fall, and Enoch walks with God. So, so here's the thing you have to understand. The communion with God is the destination. You don't have to get there and there and there. And there. The, 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 the real destination that you want is to be walking with God. That's the story of life. That's the story of faith. That's the story of actually being saved and belonging to God. Is not rushing away from God to something else, but slowing down and knowing God and being in that kind of communion with him. And then it's really interesting. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, we get this repetition. It's the... Um, again, and he walked with God, Enoch did, and then he was not. In other words, Enoch was no longer on earth. Well, what happened to him? Everybody else we've read about dies. But listen to this, and then he was not, for God took him. In other words, to heaven, because Enoch walked with God. You see, this is the warm-up for an eternal walk with God. That, that's what living with God. That's what being saved is about. So it involves being patiently faithful, following Jesus, and being in communion with him and his church family, his, our brothers and sisters, and living out a lifestyle, a way of life, eternal life breaking in in this life as we walk with the Lord. So it's not surprising then, understanding that, that when Paul frames the second half of his letter to the church at Ephesus from chapter 4 forward, he frames it out, and really chapters 4 and 5 specifically, with five, five um, commands or exhortations to walk. That's not going to surprise you based on everything I've just said, is it? And in the Greek, it's the peripateo language. You know, it's, it's, it's walking around with Jesus, right? So uh, chapter 4, verse 1. This is the topic sentence as Paul moves from the doctrine and then the prayer that we will live in love that closes out chapter 3. The, the topic sentence for the rest of Ephesians is, is this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. That's chapter 4, verse 1. Now, then Paul continues his explication of what it means to live like a Christian, and you get to the second exhortation to walk. This is in chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, and he urges them, don't walk 
like the Gentiles, like the nations, who in their darkened minds are alienated from God, but you, uh, they've given themselves over to sensuality. They've given themselves over to sensuality. This is uh, this paradoke term here. We're going to come back to it with Jesus because that's selfishness, giving yourself over to the things of this world and sensuality. That's what the Gentiles have done. And Paul says, don't walk like that. That's 4, 17 through 19. Now, the third of the five, this will not surprise you. In other words, the central one that we're really supposed to ultimately focus on is our verse for today. 5, 2. Walk in love just as Christ loved us. Walk in the way Christ walks giving himself up as an offering and sacrifice to God, a sweet aroma to God. The, the fourth is chapter five, verse eight, walk as children of the light. This is a big theme in all the Bible. We saw it in the prophet Isaiah. Israel is called to walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 5 and then it runs all the way through Isaiah the call to salvation is to walk as children of the light to walk in the light people walking in darkness have seen a great light come on walk over to the light and first John 1 7 but if we walk in the light as he is in the light in other words the Lord is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we walk in the light. So, again, 5.8, that's the fourth of the five framers for Paul in Ephesians, in the second half of Ephesians. And then the fifth one is this, 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So that's walk. And that flows us into the second main point, which we will simply touch on briefly. You can see it in the notes here. Walk in godly love. Walk in godly love. Now, the godly love here, sometimes we overemphasize, you know, Greek terms and the Greek words for love. But here, I think it is really important to understand Paul is talking about agape. He's calling us to that kind of self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Not just, you know, hey, I picked you out, so I really like you a lot, or you're my kin, so I'm going to love you. Not that kind of love, but the love that gives itself away without limit. So that's the kind of love we're supposed to walk in. And it's living out what the New Testament calls the law of love. As Christians, we're supposed to follow the law of love. Here's the bottom line. Everything I think about, say, and do, does it fit with loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving my neighbor as myself? Does it fit with within the church loving my brothers and sisters like Christ loved them and gave himself up for them. The love command that we'll talk about on Monday, Thursday. Does it fit with loving God, loving my neighbor and within the church, loving passionately everybody who's a brother and sister in Christ? That's to walk in godly love. And Jesus did that. We're supposed to walk in agape, walk in love just as, and now this gets us to number three, just as Christ decisively gave himself up for us so that you could be saved, so that you could walk with him, gave himself up a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
Uh, these are two different terms here. Every, everything in here is really packed and important. Paul uses a term, the prospera term, that means like a life offering. Like everything that Jesus did his whole life is an offering to God. And Jesus is giving himself up. Do you think, do you think it was a lot of fun for the king of the universe, the creator of all things, to, to spend slow days with a bunch of daft and unfaithful disciples? Hmm? I mean, Jesus could have been instructing the archangels up in heaven, and he's spending time slowly moving through Galilee, slowly making his way. No, 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 let me repeat this again. I think you missed this one. So Jesus is willing to do that for us. And so also we're called in the same way to give ourselves up, to give ourselves away. Parents, are, is, is it frustrating sometimes to re-explain to a three-year-old about yes and no but is it fruitful does God bless it absolutely with teenagers you got to be joking if you think you can stay patient all the time right and by the way vice versa teenagers with their parents but God is calling us to this kind of love a love that is a self-offering throughout a lifetime so that's the prosphron there. But then he says, gave himself up an offering and a sacrifice, thysia, okay? And that's a term that has to do with specifically a sacrifice that God commands. And what are we talking about there? Now we're going to the cross itself. The Lamb of God who sheds his blood to take away our sin. Jesus gave himself up both ways, and the two go together. See, if you're really lovingly embracing and walking and in communion with people, you will make the ultimate sacrifice. You're never going to get to the ultimate sacrifice if your life is not an offering, though, if you're not walking in love. So that's part of what we're supposed to learn from this. And here's the thing. Here's the gospel. Because Jesus has done this already, we can walk on the foundation that he has laid. And we can walk in the inspiration that he gives us. And we can walk understanding the destination. Because here, here's the thing that we have to understand. This is the gospel. Jesus' love and his ultimate sacrifice for us is the foundation of our walk, the inspiration of our walk, and the destination of our walk. He, he, he and what he has done for us, his love is the foundation and the inspiration. How are we ever gonna do this? Is because he's already laid the foundation and done it for us. He is, as Hebrews says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He is the foundation, the inspiration, and he is the destination. I wanna live forever. To live forever is to be with Christ and to walk with him forever. He is the foundation, the inspiration, and the destination. And, and the bottom line is this. Costly love, which Jesus ultimately fulfilled for us, is the way to eternal life. But if you are saved and living in eternal life already, you're willing and inspired by his spirit within you to give yourself away. That's the way the gospel works. That's the way being a Christian works. 
to be filled with eternal life comes from him and his eternal life in us that he gives us. The spirit as a foretaste of what is to come drives us and compels us and inspires us to live as Christians, to give ourselves away in love. That's the invitation of the gospel. See, here's the thing. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death by himself. Even his father was not with him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I, when we walk through the valleys and ultimately the valley of the shadow of death, we get to walk with him. You will not go through alone because he was willing to go through alone. He gave himself up as an offering and a sacrifice to God. And it was fully satisfying. This is complete atonement. Listen to this. It's a sweet offering to God, a sweet fragrance. That means it's fully satisfying. And in the Old Testament, when you get a fragrant offering, it has to do with everything that has to do with consecration, dedication, peace offerings, and yes, forgiveness of sin offerings. And Jesus has done that all. He's fully satisfied everything. So you can trust in him. And because we can, then we're called as Christians. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse one, therefore, in light of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It's the same term that I just read you from Ephesians this year. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because his love is in us when we believe in him. Why? Because we know that God is fully satisfied. We have nothing to prove and we can give everything away because there's more and more from him forever and ever. And so, I was really struck this past week listening again to this recent song that Mark Hall from Casting Crowns wrote. And it just touched me as we move into this week and think about Jesus as the one who shows us the way of eternal love. Mark Hall wrote this song as he watched his mother struggle over the death of her mother and father, in other words, his grandparents. After they died, he wrote this song. Some of you know it. I know the road you walked was anything but easy. You picked up your share of scars along the way. Oh, but now you're standing in the sun. You fought your fight and your race is run. The pain is all a million miles away. The only scars in heaven, they won't belong to you and me. There'll be no such thing as broken and all the old will be made new. And the thought that makes me smile now even as the tears fall down, is that the only scars in heaven are on the hands that hold you now. Hallelujah, hallelujah, for those hands that hold you now. Love perfected, completed in Jesus. And when he holds us in heaven, and when he takes us by the hand and we walk with him, his hands alone bear the scars in perfect love. Glorify God 
and walk with Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.